to your experience that can't be changed. You can't rewrite your past history. Um, you know, the, the, I believe it was Jack Cornfield who said, a lot of us spend a great deal of time wishing for a better past. <laughs> you know, not happening. So there's the genetic reality of what your brain was, there's the physical reality of, how it of what it was born into, and the psychological reality of what you're making of all of that, and what you have been doing with this process, some of which brought you to here. So that's the complexity. You've got a very complex brain, electrically incredibly active. Um, most of what's happening in you is happening way below the waterline, below your level of conscious awareness, but is boiling up from below and presenting the next thing to distract you. So the whole concept of self-directed neuroplasticity is about bringing yourself to balance on this process and to have skillful means in, in your ability not necessarily to sit on the cushion but what's going to happen when you get in your car you drive off the land you make the right turn under Sir Francis Drake and then try to figure out how you're going to, you're going to get back to San Rafael you know, and how you're going to do that gracefully that's, that's the whole process is taking this back out on the road quite literally Wow. Okay, so the, sort of a cardinal principle of where Rick and I uh, uh, approach our practice and, and these day-longs is that mental activity entails underlying neural activity. We're not going to jump into the concept of whether or not there is some part of us that is outside this, outside this body. Uh, I, for one, have a sufficiently complicated and difficult time trying to understand what's going on with my brain without attempting to get some transcendental thing uh, outside of it. Uh, and it is difficult for me enough, uh, enough to minimize my own suffering in my own life, just concentrating on what exists now rather than to, de you know, to, to, to debate where I come from and where I'm going after this body quits. Uh, and, we have, and actually within, within the, the Buddhist tradition there's a long structure, a long, long history that debating karma and debating uh, whether or not you reincarnated here or whether you, you, what you incarnated from and where you're going to incarnate in the next life, debating all that doesn't solve the current problems of suffering. And the Buddha actually sat in that. And he said, you know, getting into debates on karma, getting into debates on, uh, on reincarnation pretty much gets you into the thicket of views and doesn't solve the current issue, which is suffering, its genesis within this life, and the things that are causing it and the relief from suffering. Uh, so mental activity entails underlying neural activity. We're pretty much grounding our stuff in the brain. Can we keep the slides? They should keep up the slides. As we work yeah. through those. Yeah. Ardent, diligent, resolute, and mindful. Um, some very important phrases, and for me, one of the beautiful slides that uh, speaks to where we are, where we are heading today in terms of steadiness of mind and focused attention. Um, this is a what we call a sagittal section. It's from front to back. Uh, the uh, the monastic's nose is over there on my left, and the, the back of the head is in the back. This is a functional MRI study uh, laying over an area of 
metabolic activity that's greater than the rest of the brain uh, versus uh, the anatomic image of that section. What's highlighted in this slide is an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. And that just means the cingulate cortex, this, this thing right here is called the corpus callosum that, collects, that connects the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And just above it is the cingulate cortex. And Rick will talk a little bit later today about lateral versus mesial networks. This is a mesial network. This is right in the middle of the head. Um, on both sides. On both sides. So you have a left anterior cingulate and a right anterior cingulate. We think, in terms of what's gone on in, uh, in the anatomic substrate of the concept of self, that a lot of the selfing process... How this, how this particular experience relates to who I am and what I'm going to do about it, a lot of that goes along in circuits that really incorporate a great deal of the, of the cingulate cortex. Now the jujitsu move here is that most of that stuff that really describes me, I, me, mine, my story, my, my uh, personal anthropologic reportage on how I, how I got to be here and who I am, doesn't necessarily involve the anterior cingulate. It involves the posterior cingulate as really sort of the, the, gen, the genesis of much of that, of that thought Posterior process. is in the back. Yeah, anterior so, is in the front. Thanks. They use all these lingo, but it's yeah, like I, I'll front, drop into jargon. back, I drop into jargon. middle, sides. <laughs> Mesial, lateral, <laughs> anterior, posterior. Okay. Um, what, that the anterior cingulate is the part of the, of the brain that actually is responsible for, for knowing when you are on task. So when you are asking yourself to focus on the brain, uh, or means focus on your breath, the, and, you are, and you're going along, the anterior cingulate is monitoring whether or not you're there. So as I, as I talked about it a little early in response to the question about waking up, when you, when you come back, the anterior cingulate is the thing that wakes up and says, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm dealing with my shopping list. I didn't want to deal with the shopping list. Uh, I want to be focused on my breath. Then the anterior cingulate is the piece that reacts. Now this is a, a monastic who's in deep, a deep meditative state, and they're just in awareness. So the only piece of brain that's really running at much higher, at much higher uh, amounts of metabolic activity than the rest of the brain, the only piece that's running is his anterior cingulate. And it's just chortling along, and he's, he's, in, he's just totally in just aware. Yeah. So, and one of the things in, other, in terms of the, of the words that are on this slide, mindfulness is where we're trying to head, is this ardent, diligent uh, quality. And this is another piece of the jiu-jitsu, which is that in order to be able to, to really do this meditation, you have to connect it into your limbic system, the part of you that just absolutely loves being alive. You have to connect it into that sense of, of joyful, uh, I am alive awareness in order to get that ardency. You know, that, that ardency is, is essentially all of the great love stories that you've ever heard of. That's the thing you need to be connected into while you are staying in, in, in pure awareness 
undisturbed by things, including your own eternal emotions. You can begin to see the kind of skill set that you have to develop in order to stay in a strongly connected, emotionally involved um, uh, state with your mind while remaining in equanimity. Just think of that as a goal. You know, it's like falling madly in love and being absolutely calm. Okay. Not a small task. Now we shouldn't be really upset with ourselves when, when you can't play Chopin preludes the first time you sit down at the piano. Chopin preludes are ten years down the road with a lot of practice. So, how do we get there? Repeated mental activity entails repeated neural activity. Repeated neural activity builds neural structure. Or as Hebb said about 50 years ago, neurons that fire together wire together. It is in the, it is in the, it is in the nature of synaptic connections, that synaptic connections that are used the neurons that are involved in that make more synapses. They tend to, they tend to connect more strongly in, the, in that pattern. That is how one develops all kinds of different things. The analogy I used in a question earlier on today was about riding a bicycle. The first time you got on, uh, first time you got on a bicycle, you fell off. Unless dad was kind of back there holding the seat to make sure that you didn't wobble too much. Um, Once you develop the task, or once you develop the skill set, and you incorporated it, you embodied it as Rick uh, just did with, with the first meditation today. Once you put that into an embodied neural framework and it sat there, you can't forget how to ride a bicycle. Okay? A number of us here probably haven't ridden a bicycle in a long time. I'm supposed to go out and exercise tomorrow. I may or may not do that. Uh, but, the, but if we said all of our cars magically disappeared and there were a bunch of 10 speeds out there and you all got to get home on the 10 speeds, we'd all probably, you know, at least most of us, would probably be able to manage getting down the road in some manner, way, shape, or form. We may not look very graceful, but we'll get there because our bodies remember how you do that. That's a, neural, that's a neural activity, uh, a mental activity building a neural structure which then perpetuates. Now, that's kind of a semi-positive one. Let's talk about all those relationship mistakes that you make. Let's talk about the addictions that you may have. Those are different bicycles. And how do you deal with the different bicycles? Well, you, do, you build up, by mental activity, you build up neural structures to help you skillfully manage the events that are maybe not so good. And if, you, if there is, there is in, 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 uh, in, in Buddhism the wheel of dependent origination. And it starts with ignorance and ends with death. Uh, you know, that's one of the dour facts of Buddhism. <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, the wheel has a place when, when ignorance incarnates and then you have contact. That genetic, physical, behavioral brain 
comes in contact with an experience. And this is a 20, 50 microsecond kind of event. Out of that experience, feeling arises. It's positive, negative, neutral. You don't need to make a whole lot about it. The, term, the, 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 the Sanskrit term is Vedna. The, 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 a feeling arises, and then just like the monkey and the banana and the girl monkey on the tree next, uh, you move toward things that you, that you want, you move away things from things that you don't like. The monkey's sitting there looking at the, uh, 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 at the boa constrictor on the tree next door over here. So you move, to, you move toward things you like, you move away from things that you like. And as soon as you begin to act on that sensation, craving arises. And craving is a ubiquitous term. It means I, I crave more or I crave less. I either have craving or aversion. That's, that's a property of, the, of this nervous system we live in. So the only place you can break that wheel is at that point that feeling arises and before craving arises. And that requires equanimity and balance and an entire skill set built up so that you, you know, you'll make mistake after mistake after mistake in dealing with this. But as you come to the point where the nervous system is seeing, ah, I want a chocolate chip cookie. I weigh 230 pounds. I don't need chocolate chip cookie. You can begin to see how you, ha- you, you develop a skill set to be able to cope with, with this thing as it arises and prevent chocolate chip cookies leading to heart attacks and death, which it can't do if you eat too many chocolate chip cookies. So... Neurons that fire together, wire together. What do we know about some of the meditative practices? This is a study by Laser. It was published about 10 years ago. And what this looks at are meditation experiences that results in increased cortical thickness. Now, everybody's looking around saying, well, what does that mean? I mean, you know, yeah, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger goes to the gym and develops biceps. Uh, the, the cortical thickness increase is on the order of a millimeter. Now, the synapses are on the order of microns. Very small. So when you talk about a millimeter increase in thickness, you're not, necess- you're not talking about the developing more neurons, but all those neurons that you do have become more densely in- interconnected. And the areas of the brain that get involved are the uh, insula, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. So what does the insula do? The insula is the area of the brain that's the higher cortical function for your gut sense of what's going on. All of, it's the cortical representation of your, inter- of your internal body state. It's also the source of your... Um, Essentially, being able to reach out and look around you and pick up the internal body states of the people around you. This is genetically programmed. This is our mirror neuron system. And, the, and having more mirror neuron systems, not necessarily maybe more mirror neurons, but more strongly interconnected mirror neurons in the insula means that we have a greater sense of empathy for ourselves and a greater sense of empathy for others. 
genetically, we, you know, this comes down. We desperately need to have a mirror neuron system because if I'm sitting there and Rick is over on the other side of the room and I can pick up that Rick is incredibly disturbed, I may need to look behind me for the leopard. And we, ca- and we came from that kind of a species. That's why we evolved in clans of you know, th- somewhere between 50 and 200 people. This room is the, is the size of the average uh, clan group related by genetics, but who migrated across the savanna in East Africa you know, between 4 million and, and uh, 250,000 years ago. This is how we got here. This is part, this whole process of being able from picking up cues from each other um, through empathetic in, insular neuron, mirror neuron systems is how, is how we survived. It's one of our major evolutionary success stories. Now, how about the hippocampus? Hippocampus is your random access memory. Visual spatial on the right side of the brain for most of us who are right-handed. Verbal on the left side of the brain for most of us who are right-handed. Um, it's also tightly, well, the hippocampus is also tightly interwoven with a structure called the amygdala, um, which is the thing that usually attaches emotional valence to memory. And getting control over that and getting more circuitry evolved in that is kind of critically important because the amygdala is about 70% negative uh, and about 30% positive. So the amygdala is, in, is the amygdala most of the time is into you know is into rage and despair and anger and fear, uh, where thirty percent of it is into joy and happiness. So in terms of being able to to make our lives work better, we have to gain some level of control over the amygdala. Now the amygdala exists in a non-conscious portion of your brain. So it's building again that contact feeling craving piece that I was talking about. It's building in the the circuitry in the circuits up above from the cortex that are saying, oh, this is arising. Hmm. That wasn't very skillful the last time that showed up. I better do something different this time. And so that's part of the the piece uh, that the hippocampus gives you greater strength of memory. And that leads to prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the is essentially the decision-making piece. If you kind of you know, gross oversimplification, but the back two-thirds of your brain pretty much decides what your what thoughts it's going to make out of your current sensory experience, and the front third of your brain is going to make the decision about what to do about it in the next mind moment. So the back is saying for and the, these mind moments are fifty to two hundred milliseconds long. So the back is going pink. And the frontal cortex is going doink. So you get bink, doink, bink, doink, bink, doink. And you, go, and you do that, and you do that, you're doing that right now. This stuff, the skill set, the ability to gain more, uh, uh, greater uh, preservation of cognitive function, happens in meditation. It works really, really well. You get reduced cortical thinning with aging and insulin in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, for all of us who are moving into our 60s and 70s and 80s, um, and we're beginning to worry about either our own cognition or the cognition of the other 60% of us at 80-year-olds who are going to be demented, uh, this is a self-preservation technique. Yeah, 60 per- 60% of people 80 years old meet the criteria for dementia. 
So this is stuff you start now. You start early and, and you practice milder, often. They're milder Mild, yeah. versions. Milder versions. We're going we're, we're, we're to keep you out of the nursing home. That's what we're talking about. Um, increased activation of the left frontal region which lifts mood. Um, you know, there was this whole left brain, right brain, which is the better brain and all that other kind of stuff. That was. That it turns out that if the left brain is a little more active, you tend to be happier. People who have left frontal strokes, for example, tend to be incredibly depressed, independent of how much of a hemiparesis or a strength problem or language problem they have. The left frontal lobe has a lot of positive memory, and that whole amygdala thing that I, or excuse me, anterior cingulate cortex that I showed you, it probably is largely left anterior cingulate cortex that, that runs the, the positive meditation practice. Uh, increased gamma range uh, brain waves. Gamma, you have to know a little bit about EEG. EEG is basically a long distance electrical monitoring of the electrical oscillations in the brain. There's not a whole lot of magic to EEG. I'm an electroencephalographer. It's a little bit like listening to whispers in a hurricane. Uh, as a, a way to try to figure out you know, what, what relevance it has to that person's current thought. There's no way that an EEG can tell you what that person is thinking at the moment. But there are associated electrical oscillations with particular states. Gamma uh, activity, which you have in the EEG, you've got delta, which is like 0 to 3, which is where you go into really deep sleep. Beats that, per second. Beats, beats per second. Uh, yeah, thank you. 0 to 3 cycles per second. You have theta, which is a re- more of a resting state. It's about five to seven. Alpha rhythm, which is the idling frequency of a resting awake brain. You lie back, you close your eyes, and you, you, the back two-thirds of your brain will kind of go into alpha. Uh, and then beta activity is about 14 to 20. Gamma is up in the 30 to 40 cycle per second range. It's way up there. And we have got, as we've gotten to, to look at that over time, we see a lot more gamma activity in a resting, alert, meditative brain. There's a lot of integration going on. And if you think about how fast that's going, you're talking about oscillations that are happening right in the cortex. The, the, the alpha rhythm is talking about stuff that goes between the cortex and the brain, the stem, or the thalamus. And that oscillation happens at 8 to 14. Gamma activity is going way on up here, and there's a whole lot of little cortical processing happening at the time. In addition, for some reason we don't completely understand, people who are experienced meditators tend to have what are called central theta bursts that show up when they just kind of close their eyes and sit. Um, a little bit independent of that. And then, then finally, preserved telomere length. Well, a telomere is the thing at the end of the chromosome that you lose a little bit of every time the chromosome divides. And uh, telomere shortening is associated with aging. There, we have a whole range of, 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 of aging rates in the room here. Some people age really, really slowly, and they look at age 60 like they should be 40 years old. Uh, some people age really, really quickly, and they look at 40 like they, should be, like they are 60 years old. Some of that is related to, your, t- to the, your ability to salvage and maintain your own telomeres. Meditation is a way, actually, and has been shown, meditation actually maintains telomere length. 
part of that process is a, is a thing which, is, which we've talked about a number of other times we've given this talk, is the fact that if you get into a meditation process, you start to control the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal cortical uh, stress access. Uh, access. Uh, and I, I, I totally lost you. Okay. Uh, hypothalamus. Hypothalamus is the cortical representation of endocrine control. Runs your, uh, runs your sex hormones, runs your cortisol, runs your thyroid, runs your prolactin, runs a bunch of other things. It also is the place where some very primitive uh, emotional repertoires can show up. You can stimulate the hypothalamus in a cat and get a, a rage reaction in the cat just by going, ooh, look at that. Uh, you can make it, you can, by stimulating hypothalamus in a mouse, you can take the mouse, take on the cat, and we've all seen cartoons of that one. Uh, anyway, um, so the hypothalamus controls some basic primitive behaviors and the endocrine control, so it's kind of the top down. To control the hormones, it, it, it affects the pituitary gland, which is at the base of the brain, which pours out the hormones that stimulate the ovary or the testes or the adrenal cortex. There's a stress response so that the saber-toothed tiger jumps out of the forest and in addition to the sympathetic nervous system wiring up and <gasps> the hypothalamus kicks in and you get this flood of cortisol and other hormones out of the adrenal gland that are coming up. Now, that's really, really useful for dealing with saber-toothed tiger right here, right now. But human beings we'll get the same flood of cortisol at 3 in the morning about the saber-toothed tiger that didn't get us last week. And we will proceed to run that movie again and again and again and again and again. And the problem is that the, cor the adrenal cortex is sitting down there in just above the kidneys and it's, go it's going, I don't know, I'm being told, secrete cortisol. <laughs> well, the cortisol shrinks your hippocampus. Cortisol shrinks your cortex in long-term chronic exposure. And there's a great book by a guy by the name of Zapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, which I would strongly recommend to you to understand some of the stress responses and how that can, how that can happen. And one other thing before I move on, we focus on the breath. And... Focusing on, the, focusing on the breath is kind of interesting to me as a neurologist. It's the only autonomic nervous system function over which you got control. I dare you to sit here, make your heart beat twice as fast. I dare you to sit here and slow your gut down. I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm controlling my breath right now because I'm, I'm speaking. And so this is an autonomic function. I mean, you knock me on the side of the head and you knock me unconscious, I'm going to fall down here on the ground. Nope, I'm watching for the hammer. Yep, I'm going to fall down on the ground, but I'll continue to breathe because the brainstem kicks in and takes over and autonomically and automatically things run at a particular respiratory rate. So this is one of those subcortical, really base functions over which we have control. And isn't it fascinating that if you go into every religious lineage, the meditative practices bring you back to the breath. And, what do, and, and, and how do we know about that? How do, we, how do we describe the breath? Inspiration. Inspiritus. 
I am inculcating the spirit. Expiration. Expiritus. I am letting go of the spirit. I mean, it goes back into our Latin, our Latin phrases, and so there's an entire lineage within the Christian church discussing the, discussing the same process. In the basic anatomy, we know that every time, in, in basic neurophysiology, we know that every time you take a deep in-breath, your sympathetic nervous system ticks up a bit. I talked about the saber-toothed tiger. What happens when something like that occurs? <gasps> I, in, I take a deep breath in. I'm getting oxygen. Well, the sympathetic nervous system is also saying, okay, let's bring up the systems on board. We're either going to run like hell away from the saber-toothed tiger or get ready to punch it in the nose, depending upon what, I, what I'm planning on doing at that moment. Saber-toothed tiger goes back into the forest. <sighs> Parasympathetic system kicks in, rides up, and you, know, you calm down. So every breath you take as in meditation, in addition to being some focus of retention, is also an exercise in regulating your autonomic nervous system. And there's um, a group called the HeartMath Institute, which uh, uses regulation of the breath um, to bring autonomic nervous systems into focus. And the way they do that is that you spend uh, equal times on inspiration and on expiration. So you do a slow four count in, a slow four count out. And that actually regulates the RR interval, and I'll talk about that in a second, the RR interval of the cardiac rhythm. Normally, your heart's beating at 72 beats per minute, but it'll have a range of 60. If you do each beat and you look, well, how, much it, how many is that beats between this beat and this beat? If you, if you extend that out for a minute, right now, my heart's beating at 65. Now it's beating at 78. Now it's being at, at 69. Now it's being at 72. So there's an RR variability in your heart rate as you sit there. What happens is if you're doing heart math work and you're doing this regular respirations is that every beat comes to 72. Boink, 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 boink. And there's no longer variability. And that, again, goes back into the control of some of these unconscious processes. This is a slide uh, from 2016. This is a guy by the name of Kieran Fox. And this is from a review of... Uh, 78 different neuroimaging studies that have been done on meditators of various kinds. Way complicated slide. I'm not going to point to it and, and run you through everything, but I will point out a couple of stuff. The anterior cingulate cortex, what, the things we are going to be focusing on today are the ones in red. Anterior cingulate cortex, premotor cortex, insula, and a little bit of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Those are the things that get activated in focused concentration practice. The ones in green, uh, mantra meditation. And the, the stuff is up here. So you have mantra meditation in green, open, uh, open monitoring in blue, and the um, loving kindness meta, uh, meta compassion practices in yellow. And you can see that each one of these different practices tends to activate different areas of the brain. The real take-home message from this slide is that there are many paths up the mountain. And for some people, 
uh, focused concentration practice will be extraordinarily difficult, but loving-kindness meditation will be uh, a walk in the park. For some people, a mantra is necessary. For some people, open awareness is necessary. But it appears from the way that, the, that this process works that each one of these paths for the individual it has the potential to be extraordinarily successful. The task of the meditator coming into to meditation practice is to kind of figure out which one is going to work for you. And over time, sort out which one fits your genetic, physical, psychological structure and how you can skillfully go from here forward. And again, we have a, a long legacy in the Buddhist tradition of these kinds of things. The Buddha taught multiple, multiple, multiple. There are sutta after sutta after sutta after sutta talking about multiple different kinds of meditation for different practitioners. And he also said, you know, for, there are like at least four ways that this will happen. You know, your path to enlightenment will be easy and short. Good for you. Your path for enlightenment will be easy and hard. Yeah, maybe not so good. Easy and hard or uh, I'm sorry, short and hard. Short and hard. Not so good. I'm, I'm ahead of my brain here. Uh, the, third, the third one, your path will be long but easy. So you've you know, you got to live a while, but you're gonna, you eventually get there. Or your path is going to be long and hard. And he pretty much said, whichever is your path, is whatever your genetic, physical makeup, you be stuck with it. And that's it. And so the most important piece on, that I can kind of uh, go on from here one of the most important underpinnings for this practice is equanimity about the process. Accepting what is, accepting the current state as the place from which I will move, and accepting that you know things will happen, they will be good things, they will be bad things, whatever comes in, I will be open to and aware and allow to pass through me. Uh, and again, context versus content. The content will vary Context is key. Maintaining context, maintaining your meditation practice, while content flies around uh, like a bat inside this hall. Um, con- content will vary. Context, being in the hall. Being in that third person, witnessing the hall, and the sangha within the hall. And being with that is, is, is key for the practice. So, this is this one is, just before this. There's one just before. Oop. I didn't want to be in the bottle. There we go. I want it out of my bottle. So major Buddhist inner strengths are the things we're attempting to cultivate. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, bliss, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, compassion, kindness, altruistic joy, virtue. These are all things that one can bring uh, bring about. And each one of these can be the focus of meditation for this current sitting or perhaps a year or two or three or a couple of decades worth of work depending upon what, what your nature and history are. So, in inner strengths, all that previous stuff, each one of those things is built from brain structure. And the brain structure is built from practice is built from going, coming back to it again and again. And as I said in one of, the previ- the, one of the previous questions, with a tremendous amount 
of self-forgiveness. You are trying to learn to ride a very difficult bicycle. A very difficult bicycle that has its own mind, sort of like a, you know, a spirited horse. Uh, a very difficult bicycle that maybe doesn't want to be ridden today. Um, and let's see. If, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Questions. I I went through a lot and I've I've hit a number of points. So so we got. You want in the um, front and then. Yeah. Thank you. This is great. Um, I wondered, you said that um, meditation maintains telomeres, and I'm wondering, does it rebuild them, or once you've lost, have you lost forever? The, that's, that's, a harder, that's a harder study to, to do from that standpoint, because I, uh, you know, I don't think the double-blind crossover has been done in, you know, to, to measure the genetics, but what they do notice is that people with, who are long-term meditators... Um, tend to have greater uh, telomeric length. Some of this original work was done with mantra meditation uh, uh, through the Transcendental Meditation Program in Iowa, uh, but it's being replicated in other kinds of areas. But I was just wondering, say you're a meditator, but then you go through a severe stress, a child dies or something like that, so you, so right. you would probably lose some telomere if from that chronic ongoing you know, stress. They don't know yet whether that you could rebuild that at a later date. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question for those in the room who may not have heard it, or for those online, uh, whether you can rebuild uh, rebuild telomeric length from a stressful experience. I do know there is an analogy to this, which is that they have looked at. Uh, central nervous system volume, the volume of the brain contained within the skull and how much cortex you have. There's no question that stress causes cortical atrophy. And you can measure people who are chronically stressed, people who have been uh, incarcerated or placed, you know, uh, captured and held for, as hostages. You can see that they have hippocampal and cortical atrophy. There was a study done on Tibetan nuns who had been held captive by the Chinese. Um, and who were engaged in, in, essentially in the practice of love your enemy. They were engaged in the practice of, being, of, compassion, of compassion for the other. No cortical atrophy. So again, contact, feeling, craving. You're not in charge of your history. You're not in charge of your genetics. You're not in charge of that noise. I was. Uh, you are in charge of how you react to that noise. And even if you're not in charge of that's a nasty noise and we should stop doing that for the first half second after I clap my hands, you are in charge of what you do with the next five to ten seconds about that. Okay, he's up on the seat. I guess he gets to do that. Or some other kind of thing. Or Perhaps just saying, okay, that's a clap. Isn't it an interesting noise? Can I use it as an object of meditation for how noise arises through my auditory processing system and what it does to me? And follow the track back behind to the experience so that the next time he claps his hands, I will not be disturbed. You follow me? Was there a question in the back? Thank you. And then how about one more after that? 
So has anyone ever told you you look like Bob Newhart? I, I, get, I get told I look like Bob Newhart about uh, three times a month. I consider that a great compliment. It is. It's a great compliment, yeah. So, um, I, wish I, I wish I had the money from his show, but I... <laughs> I think you're the Bob Newhart that we didn't see on the show. You're the serious part of him that was a success, successful therapist, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what... I, I will so, try not to get ego about that. That's, yeah, it's a really great compliment. Um, so, so I'm trying to process all of this, and I'm going to think out loud a little bit, but uh, I understand the, what I'm not in charge of. I think you did a really good job with that. So what about, so I'm, I'm dealing with uh, benign vertigo that showed up like a month ago. So it's arisen in me. Mm-hmm. And now, like, what, what sort of connection would you put in there? <laughs> Is that, is that a question? Do you understand what I'm uh, saying? I see, yeah, I'm giggling because I see vertigo patients uh, about 10 times a week. Oh. So you're about, to get, you're about to get a canned riff. Excellent. Uh, a couple things. First off, I think vertigo, vertigo is a beautiful, exper- a beautiful experience of exactly what it means to have stuff come boiling up from the brainstem. Okay. And to have stuff come boiling up from the brainstem or from the limbic circuits, from emotion, from you know, memories, all of that stuff in an uncontrolled fashion, and now what do I do with it? Um, first off, the vertigo is in and of itself connected into tremendous fear. Fear arises as a consequence of vertigo because all of a sudden you find yourself halfway up Mount, uh, halfway up El Capitan, free climbing, you just ran out of chalk, and it's about to rain. And that's the experience. Oh my God. Uh, so that, that, is a, that is an, it's a primitive, unmodulated, fear of falling, infant-related terror experience that you have to, to cope with. So there's that. And that shows up. There also is this sense of freezing. You can't move. There is an immobility that arises, which you, often, you oftentimes have difficulty arranging. And even in, during the periods where you're not feeling like you're spinning, the, the, problem, with, the problem with having the, the balance system go out, becoming imbalanced, and you can take this metaphor to psychological balance as well, the problem of being unbalanced is that your clock time goes. If you think about visual-spatial balance, it's all about calculating where something is going to be so that I can catch it. And I have to do a three-dimensional calculus inside the cerebellum to get my hand to where I'm going to catch the glasses so they don't fall in the bell. So my clock time is intimately involved in event by event by event by event by event. So if my clock time goes out, my sense of time goes away. And if my sense of time goes away, my memory goes away. Because if you think about memory, it's what came first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. I want you to remember... Um, face velvet church daisy red those five words well you got to remember that church the church came after velvet and before daisy and before red so you got to so if i got a nice sequential clock time i know that if i don't have a nice sequential 
clock time. It may be face-fed relevant church sanctuary. Where'd sanctuary come from? You know, so all of that happens. So you have both a physical effect, you have an emotional response, and you have a whole cognitive thing that shows up just as the, due to the dysfunction of one silly little accelerometer in one of your ears that went south. And so now this accelerometer is, is, is bad, and the brain is trying to compare. It's locked again in that skull like that brain I showed on the picture. The brain has no other way of verifying that you're sitting still in a chair in West Marin and that this, is, then that this, that this sanctuary, this room, is not a merry-go-round going at 60 RPM. It's got no way of verifying that because it's stuck inside the skull. And it's dependent on the electrical circuitry coming up from above. So to take that back into the therapy thing, and then we'll take one more question and then move on. Maybe no more questions. Maybe no more questions. I talk a lot. Sorry. Um, to take that into the therapeutic piece, and again I'm going to take this to the metaphor about all other things that knock you off balance, knock you off your cushion. The way that we treat vertigo is to give people exercises that make them dizzy and fatigue the system. So I give people a whole series of exercises for them to do and I pretty much tell them, okay the first day you're going to go through all of these and the ones that you can really do when you have a good time and oh isn't this fun, you don't do. The ones that you hate me for making you do because you're sitting there up chucking into a trash can on the side of your bed after I make you do them, those are the ones you got to do. And you do them time after time after time until the brain says, okay, I give up. Ignore this one. Pay attention to all the rest. And the brain has to work its way through to sort that out. Just like it had to work its way through on how to ride a bicycle. This is neuronal process. This literally is the way the brain handles every experience. And it's sort of a constancy to the way the brain, you know, learns. And you make those, and you make those neurons that you uh, fire together, that includes inhibitory neurons to block this bad ear. You make those neurons fire together to suppress function from the right ear so that they then wire together and you can walk home without falling on your tush. How does meditation play into that? Again, I'm going to come back to the equanimity piece. I am sitting in, a, in as calm a frame as I can with what's going on. This is arising. What is arising is not necessarily me. Me is the focus of awareness. And you actually kind of have to play with that because there really is no me here. There's no self that's sitting on the cushion. There is a selfing process that is sitting itself on the cushion. You follow me? This is that little interesting thing called anatta with no self. And what the Buddha said was not, he said, there's no self, there's no non-self. There is a selfing subroutine that gives you the illusion of self that continues as long as you're alive. And, re- and creates an autobiographical neuronal record of who this being was. And part of that process is that in, in, in linguistic format, 
Self is not a noun. It's a gerund, selfing. And if you think of it within the context of a subroutine, within this electrical, chemical, biological brain of a computer, if you think of it as a subroutine that, 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 that creates this, this is the body that's doing this, it's incredibly useful because this is, I'm, do, I'm lifting up this, uh, this clicker. Okay, I am lifting. Okay. You could also say lifting is happening. And, you know, and there's this biological being that is doing it. For shorthand, I say I'm lifting. But I don't want to make the mistake of saying I, you know, and really holding that as something that's firm and real. And neurologists get this all the time because um, we, have, uh, we have patients who have strokes. I have one pre- uh, who, whose self gets altered. I had one pra- uh, Buddhist practitioner who was meditating and, um, and who had a stroke in his prefrontal cortex on the right side, actually. And he became exquisitely happy with his ability to maintain concentration. He, was, he, he's, he, he felt like he, he could really sit on the cushion. His wife, who was also a Buddhist meditator, said, I lost him. He isn't there anymore. This is, I am no longer married to the man I married. Because the personality structure, the empathetic emotional content of his, of his, of his organism went somewhat bye-bye. Not completely. But enough so that they didn't quite match. So th- this, is, this is what I'm trying... Where my, my message for you today is to realize what, how incredibly dynamic and unstable this sitting here on the cushion is and how we should not be attached to any reality of me, I sitting on cushion there's sitting happening with all kinds of stuff going on thank you thank you I thought what we could do at this point is uh, slide into a practice something experiential and uh, to just kind of hit some high points quickly along the way there, throwing it up the slide, if we could. Okay. So a lot of what we've been talking about is, in a certain way of putting it, what's the fundamental process of transformation? What are really the mechanics of it? And healing, development, acquisition, learning. What's the fundamental process? In essence, it's a movement from state to trait which fosters that state and becomes reinforced as a trait in a positive cycle. Or it could be a negative cycle. Moments of anxiety, states of anxiety, foster trait anxiety in part through literally changing underlying neural structures which then make us more prone to states of anxiety which then can be reinforced as anxiety. So either way, the nervous system evolved to learn, to be changed by the experiences moving through it. As a detail you may know, the brain has an evolved negativity bias, which makes it prone to overlearning from quote-unquote negative states, very efficient at turning those into negative traits, which then foster even more negative states. I'm using the word negative not morally, but pragmatically, as that which leads to suffering and harm for ourselves and other people, 
positive, quote-unquote, or synonyms like good, quote-unquote, are, are that is that which leads to happiness and welfare of oneself and others. All right. So we're working this cycle, state to trade, and along the way, uh, built into what we're doing here, you'll, you'll hear how I make suggestions, and Rick as well, we're trying to help beneficial states really sink in and steepen the conversion, steepen the learning rate, steepen the conversion rate from beneficial state to beneficial trade so we have more of a learning orientation, a growth orientation in our own practice. That's a nice positive cycle. In effect, that means, as I said earlier, oops, we can use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better, to benefit ourselves and other beings. As a way of understanding this, uh, quickly here, it's important for me to put cultivation in context. We're speaking here about the cultivation of, let's say, steadiness of mind, or the cultivation of, as I'll move into momentarily, compassion and self-compassion, or the cultivation of grit, resilience, or secure attachment, or greater self-regulation, whatever it is we're cultivating. That's just part of practice. In my view, there are three great ways fundamentally to engage the mind skillfully. We first just simply be with what's there. We experience the experience. We feel the feeling. We be with the vertigo. We be with the pain. Or we be with the gratitude. We simply be with what's there. Maybe we investigate it. Maybe we sense down to what's younger and more more vulnerable. But we're not actively trying to change it. I think that's the most fundamental mode of practice. And it's... Our last resort, when all else fails, and it's also where we tend to move uh, in the progression of our own uh, path of awakening. But it's not the entirety of practice. And in many ways, that sort of inert, receptive, passive orientation to the mind has, in my view, become overvalued in many quarters. There's also a place for working with the mind, not simply being with it, through forms of wise effort. Most of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism is some application of wise effort one kind or another, including, for example, the cultivation of wise view or the cultivation of wise intention. So there are also two other aspects of skillful practice in addition to being with the mind. We prevent or diminish or release what's problematic, quote-unquote negative, and we create, protect, and grow that which is beneficial. All these modes of practice work together for us to be able to sustain open awareness, choiceless awareness, in which we're most radically simply being with what's there, we usually need to grow resources in the third mode of practice, cultivate resources such as steadiness of mind or distress tolerance, the capacity to bear our own pain. Mindfulness is to be present in all three modes of practice. Another misunderstanding that's commonly crept in is to conflate or uh, mindfulness with or reduce it to merely choiceless witnessing of the stream of consciousness. We're to be mindful while driving a car, mindful while hanging out with our friend who's teaching, mindful while eating dinner, mindful while speaking truth to power. Mindfulness is to be present under all three conditions of mind. In other words, it's not antithetical to mindfulness or in conflict of mindfulness to engage in skillful, wise effort with the mind. All right. Okay, even monastics deeply embedded in valuing of the orientation of just being with the mind, letting be. You know, even they, even here at Spirit Rock, value 
cultivation. All right? I like this uh, line from a traditional teacher whose name escapes me. It's a progression of of practice, but also in a kind of a spiraling way. Know the mind. Be with it. Shape the mind. Wise effort. Working with it. Releasing, you know, letting go as well as letting in. Okay? Shaping the mind, which means shaping the brain inside the natural frame in embodied practice. And then free the mind. That's what steps out of this entire frame into the unconditioned, into the infinite. And then we come back and know the mind even more deeply, shape it even more skillfully, and then poof, have one more moment of freedom with regard to or in relationship to our own mind. As they say in Tibet, uh, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation, sudden awakening, or as they say, uh, moments of enlightenment many times a day. And after a while, we start stringing together those pearls more continuously in the long thread of our life. All right. So that's the context here. Okay. So now I'd like to apply this to the cultivation of a particularly uh, beautiful and useful psychological mental resource for practice, including in the context of what Rick has been talking about, about, you know... Uh, the brain and body that we've got and uh, the you know, effects of the life that we've had so far, self-compassion. So self-compassion uh, is a very useful thing. Thank you, thank you. Uh, something about this clicker. <laughs> Am I controlling the slide progression or are you guys? Really? Okay, cool, great. All right, so if, particularly from a more Tibetan Buddhist view, the root of compassion, the root of Buddhism is compassion, according to Pema Chodron. The root of compassion is self-compassion. We have to take ourselves into account. It's for the good of others, our compassion for others, that we also need to have compassion for ourselves. This speaks to a larger um, need to be on one's own side. Uh, as a longtime therapist, as well as a teacher, I've found this to be one of the most difficult first steps for many, many people, to actually be a friend to themselves like they are a friend to others, to treat themselves like they matter, to be for themselves, which, of course, does not mean being against others. But as the Buddha points out, even apart from just kindness for oneself, it's good for others to be for ourselves. Because, as he says, if one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the stream, how can one help others across? Right? So now I'd like to move into an experiential practice of self-compassion. And people teach self-compassion in different ways. Christopher Germer and Kristen Neff have done a beautiful amount of work related to uh, self-compassion, mindful self-compassion. I heartily recommend their training, mindful self-compassion. Each of them has good books, good stuff. I'm not going to pick one over the other because I'm friends with both of them. Uh, And in any case, the way I'm going to do it here is based on some neuropsychological research that we can kind of prime the pump. We sort of warm up the circuits of attachment by, by beginning with receiving caring from others. And then the way I'll do this in three steps, and I found this to be a useful way you might do with others if you work with other people, move into someone that it's easy to have compassion for in the second step after those circuits have been warmed up. And then in the third step, knowing what the embodied experience of compassion is life, like, whoop, applying it to oneself. That'll be the roadmap here. 
It'll be about 15 minutes or so, maybe 20. And then I think what we'll do after it is to um, slide into lunch. We'll just kind of segue into lunch uh, with compassion for yourself. Is that okay? All right. You won't mind having lunch, right? You won't. Okay, good. Uh, I just don't know. You know, it's an ascetic renunciate tradition. So you bet. Okay, we'll have lunch. We'll have lunch. Okay, and that's and then we'll come back from lunch and keep on going. All right. Yep. For a practice here, uh, this will be about twenty-ish minutes, twenty-five minutes. Um, we'll kind of wrap around twelve thirty. And um, as with every practice, do what's useful for you. Uh, kind of along the lines of of Rick and uh, and I being pretty ambitious here. You know, I'm gonna. You know, compassion is bittersweet. It's about suffering with, calm patio, suffering with, uh, and uh, I will include material, or I'll suggest that you bring to my material that has to do with your own difficulties to some extent. What's important with compassion is to touch the painful, the difficult, the suffering. Be aware of it. And keep the compassion most prominent, the wish that a being not suffer, usually along with warm-heartedness, tender, sympathetic concern. Right? And if you start getting swallowed up by the suffering, it's really okay to disengage from it and rest only in kindness, which does not presuppose any suffering, or versions of that like friendliness or lovingness. Okay? Right? So, here we go. If you could, eyes open or closed, feel free to stand or lie or even walk around a little bit if you like. Coming into a presence with yourself in this body, in this place, allowed to be here. Perhaps a little as the Buddha did, supposedly in his own night of awakening, metaphorically touching the ground, maybe feeling it with your feet, feeling, I have a right to be here. I'm for myself. I'm claiming my own place. And then in the first step, bring to mind one or more beings who care about you. The relationship doesn't need to be perfect. Any port in a storm, beings in your life today or in your past, pets, friends, perhaps non-human entities, angels, whatever works for you, nature, whatever helps encourage in you a growing feeling of being cared about in one way or another. I think it's helpful to recognize there are many ways to feel cared about. I think of five in particular. 
for example, to feel included as part of a group or to feel a sense of camaraderie or <coughs> fellowship with others, including perhaps politically, morally. To feel part of a work group or a floor in an apartment building or part of a family or a group of friends, that's included. That's one form of being cared about. Others are to feel seen. Someone's at least trying to understand you. That's a way to feel cared about. Another way is, of course, to feel appreciated, respected or valued, wanted. <coughs> a fourth way to feel cared about is to feel liked or befriended or there's some uh, warmth or affection or friendliness coming towards you, some fondness coming towards you. That counts. And then last, of course, feeling loved. So I'll be quiet for a minute or so as you just kind of help yourself take the experience of feeling cared about as your object of attention. In meditative language, this is a kind of concentration or absorption practice where the target experience is, in one way or another, feeling that you matter, you're liked, even loved. It's okay to bring to mind one cue or another that helps create an experience of feeling cared about or different aspects of feeling cared about. And the focus here is not so much the history or the story. It's to rest increasingly in a kind of essence of feeling cared about. Other things may well arise in the mind. And see if you can keep bringing attention back to the sense of, I have been loved. Perhaps I am loved. I have been included. I am included. I have been liked. I am liked. Or with no words at all.
And then shifting into the second step, and of course feeling free to go at your own pace or to stay with something longer. Bringing to mind someone that you care about, in particular one or more beings that you have compassion for. You're aware of their suffering, subtle or gross, their burdens, their pain, perhaps the injustice that has landed on them. And see if you can locate inside yourself a genuine wish that these beings not suffer, usually with warm-hearted, tender concern, often with the desire to help. Knowing that the compassion is still valid and authentic, even if there's nothing you can do but bear witness and wish for something better. You can strengthen compassion with the embodied sense of it, perhaps a hand on your heart, or two hands, or a hand on your cheek. You might strengthen it, if you like, with soft thoughts in the back of your mind, such as, may you not suffer, or something more specific, such as, may you have enough to eat, may you get through this divorce, may you not stress so much about your children, May your chemotherapy go well. Or other phrases or no words at all. So again, I'll be quiet for a minute or so or more. As you open to and increasingly give over to compassion, radiating outward from you, pulsing in waves, Pervading your mind in all directions. Know what compassion is like as an experience and as an attitude, as a wish. The 
receiving compassion inside yourself, registering it. Compassion establishing itself in you. And then in the third step, knowing what compassion is like, applying it to yourself. There could be a sense of you outside yourself, like you're seeing yourself over there, or maybe just a knowing of yourself on the inside, with an awareness of your own suffering, small and large, stresses, frustrations, weariness, health issues, losses, the impacts of the years before now, including in your own childhood, perhaps traumas that have landed on you and are still reverberating in some ways in your life. Clear-eyed recognition, a friendly recognition of your own suffering with a genuine warm-heartedness for yourself. Feeling of being an ally to yourself who really does wish that things were better. Not fighting anything negative, but authentically having the wholesome wish, may I not suffer? May I not suffer so much? May I not worry so much about what other people think? May I be more at peace with this chronic pain? May I find happiness. as a replacement to my suffering. May my own chemotherapy go well. Or no words at all. So I'll be quiet again for a minute or so as you radiate good wishes, other things if that feels right to you, like encouragement or perspective, especially a tender, sympathetic sweetness applied to your own suffering.
You might have a sense of your warm-heartedness for yourself, your compassion for yourself, much as you would have for another being who has your life. You might imagine that your waves of compassion are sort of pulsing toward and making contact with the pain, the stress, the wound. You might have a sense of the compassion sifting down into you or sinking down into you like a soothing balm, maybe a golden, warm, soothing balm, touching places inside that are, that are raw or hurting or just didn't get enough of what was good, empty places inside, perhaps your own hole in the heart. Your compassion is sinking down into those, spreading out into those, helping and soothing those hurting places inside, perhaps younger places inside. It's okay if your mind wanders, try to bring it back. We're taking self-compassion as the object of attention, seeking to become increasingly absorbed in that object of attention as we absorb self-compassion into ourselves. And if you like, you can pick a younger time in your life, let's say adulthood, a time that was tough for you, It could have been very recently or maybe 10 or 20 or more years ago. And imagine that younger version of yourself and what that person was dealing with and how that person was impacted by things. And see what it's like as an experiment to bring compassion to that younger layer in your own psyche. What sort of support or sympathy or recognition would have been so good to have experienced back then? What contextualizing or um, lovingness would have been so good to have received back then? What compassion would have been so good to have received back then? And see if you can radiate it, send it, extend it to that younger part of yourself.
might be a sense of receiving into that younger layer or aspect of your psyche, the supportiveness that's coming down into it. And then if you like, as we start moving toward an end here, you can do this one more time with yourself as a child. You know, don't get hijacked by or sucked into things that are too painful. It's okay to touch them lightly or hold them off to the side of awareness. But it might be beneficial to pick a time when you were a child, maybe a teenager or even a very young child, or even your realistically imagined sense of yourself as an infant or toddler. And imagine the suffering, the strain, the difficulty, the challenges of that younger version, the child. And today, keep radiating, keep sending compassion and other factors such as kindness or appreciation or encouragement radiating out to that child part of yourself or sifting down into or sinking down into that younger child part of yourself. not getting caught up in the story or the history or the events, primarily focusing on suffering of, of yourself as a child and also really prominent in your mind, a compassion for that suffering as an experience, perhaps with related factors like kindness or respect or encouragement. might be a sense of the younger parts receiving attention, compassion, support. Perhaps a releasing inside, maybe a feeling of something being soothed, even healed. At least a bit.
And then in our last couple minutes, letting go, if you like, of any awareness of suffering, letting go of any particular preoccupation with younger aspects of yourself. And in the last couple minutes here, simply resting in whatever you like, beingness, and perhaps with a particular focus on open-hearted, open-heartedness, warm-heartedness, lovingness, abiding as a wakeful heart. As we finish here, coming back into the room, it it might be helpful to gradually open the eyes while sustaining the practice. So there can be a, a sense of continuity as you come back into the room. Continuity of wholesome states of mind continuing into more active, more verbal lunchtime activities. So coming back now. In a moment we'll have lunch and when we come back we'll talk about it. It can be helpful to not get caught up in the mind or verbal chatter too much and kind of whatever was helpful or beneficial. Sort of helping it to sink in and take root in the garden of the mind. Uh, Be good with yourself. careful when you drive, uh, if you're involved, and please come back at 25 minutes to 2, okay? 1.35, so 35 minutes past the hours when we'll resume, and we'll see you then.
Okay?